The last page is very close to being turned in my current read. And I have to be honest, it's one of only two amazing books I have read in the last month and a half that make up 2024, which is really disappointing. When it comes to my book choice for this week, I can honestly say I wasn't sure what I was going to pick. After a week off, it was a bit of a struggle because I somehow managed to read myself into something of a frustrating slump. And believe me when I say that I wanted that over sooner rather than later. Who doesn't trust me? The current read seems to be doing a pretty good job, though, of eliminating it. Thank goodness. Seriously, that's a huge relief. Anyway, after a bit of searching on my shelves, I finally came up with a book that I felt was special enough to talk about so close to a milestone birthday. Yep. Your host here has reached the half a century mark just a few days ago, and that meant I just had to revisit a book I have mentioned so many times over the last three years, and even did a tiny snippet of an episode about back when the podcast first started. So here I am, no spoilers, as opinion-filled as ever, and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. Join me today as I revisit the suburb of Gardendale and meet up with some old friends in the form of Laura Chant and Sorensen Carlyle in a book that actually turns 40 this year, so it too is celebrating a milestone and also happens to be one of my all-time favourite reads ever. The Changeover by New Zealand author Margaret May. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, and long-term depression sufferer. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing TV red pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Going by the comments I have already made, You know that I am not going to be saying many negative things about this book. I just can't. It's not in my nature. It's my comfort when I'm ill and a book I read often when I'm desperate to hook myself out of a particularly bad reading slump. This one wasn't as bad as others that I've experienced over the years, though I have to admit that I didn't get a copy when it was first released being only 10 at the time, and spending most of that particular year visiting the hospital or spending evenings and weekends being ferried to and fro from my granny's house. But a year later, when I found it on the shelf of my secondary school library, it was rare that the book was out of my hands. Thank you so much, Mrs. Benison, wherever you are. Decades later, I own three copies, including the first one I purchased for myself in 1986. My most recent copy was purchased in 2008. I want you to love this book, seriously, as much as I do. So I couldn't ignore this opportunity to talk it up even more and introduce you to the workbook that introduced me to the concept of fantasy and supernatural romances. Sorry pointed his fingers at Laura. Stand and deliver, Chan. What are you doing here? I thought you might help me, she said. I need help, I think. And you're a witch, aren't you? 
From the moment Laura sees the face in the mirror, she knows it's an omen. It isn't the first time she's had a premonition, but never before have the consequences been so dire. That very day, the sinister shopkeeper, Carmody Brack, touches and brands her little brother. As Jacko fights for his life, Laura seeks out the one person who might be able to help. But the path she is about to take will change her forever. The day started as any other. Alarm going off, rush for the bathroom, but then something happened. As Laura looked in the mirror and heard a voice saying, It's going to happen. This isn't the first time Laura has had a warning, but they are rare and always a precursor to something serious, like the day her father left, or the day that Sorensen Carlyle started at Gardendale High. Of course, there isn't time for Laura to panic about the warning because her mum needs to get the house on the move, get Laura's younger brother Jacko to nursery, and she needs to get to school. As the older sister, Laura has responsibilities that many of her friends, including boy mad Nicky, can't understand. On Thursdays, for example, she has to go pick up her brother from Mrs Fangboner's and keep him occupied until her mum finishes work. So on this particular day, ignoring the warning still echoing in her mind, she takes Jacko around the shops in Gardendale when they notice a little brick and brack shop and go in. Jacko, being a lively and exuberant three-year-old, loves adventure and collects little hand stamps, like the sort you tend to collect when bar hopping. Just as they are about to leave, the owner of the shop, Carmody Brack, appears and on Jacko's request stamps his hand. Oh, how Laura will soon wish she'd heeded that warning. That evening, with the stamp still on his hand, Jacko and Laura are introduced to a guest that Kate has brought home for fish and chips, their traditional Thursday night tea. Chris Holly is visiting from Canada and he struck up a friendship with Kate while she was working in the bookshop. An instant connection has been made and though Laura is trepidatious about this new person who has invaded their space, she is more anxious about her brother, though she still can't quite figure out why. The morning after the night before, Jacko is not himself. A night of bad dreams has his tired and irritable, and the house is in uproar. Kate can't afford for him to be sick, and Laura is still annoyed with her mother about the guest they had to dinner. Again, Laura tries to tell her mum about her warning, about the weird man in the shop and about how she thinks it relates to Jacko and his behaviour, but Kate, understandably, laughs it off. It's just Laura being a teenager. That afternoon, Laura picks up Jacko from the childminder, the strangely and somewhat inappropriately named Mrs Fangboner, and they find themselves walking past Carmody Brack's store. The man looks different, and Laura finds herself trying to identify what it is about him that alarms her. Somehow she knows that he is a demon, that there is something about him definitely not right. She just can't quite figure out what it is. Of course, Friday is like Thursday. Kate invites Chris for dinner and while they are eating, a startling cry is heard. When Laura enters her brother's little bedroom, she smells the odd aroma that she recognises from the bric-a-brac shop and there is a horrifying smile on her brother's face. Horrified and terrified, Laura sneaks from the house, heading through a rather rough part of Gardendale. Her destination is Janua Cayley, the home of the seventh form prefect, and she is sure which Sorensen Carlyle 
who I will sometimes refer to as Sorry. Startled at the realisation that Sorry's mother and grandmother both know who she is, she confronts the male witch in his room. And while he acts somewhat startled, he is also rather happy that she is there, initially sure that she has shown up because she reciprocates his inexplicable feelings. When she tells him that she needs his help because he's a witch, he is both disappointed and angry. Though he is not happy that she has come to visit him because she wants his witchy help, he is forced by his strong grandmother, and there are a lot of strong female characters in this book, to take Laura home. The area she walked through is not at all safe, and a student at their school previously discovered this to her detriment. The next morning, things are no better. In fact, they are ten times worse, so bad that Jacko has to be taken to hospital. Laura is sure she knows what going what is going on, but no one will listen to her tales of incubi or succubi. They have to be nonsense. These creatures cannot exist. They must be a figment of her imagination. While Kate is out buying pyjamas and many other items that Jacko may need in hospital, Sorensen arrives at the house and witnesses one of Jacko's fits. Unsure and having struggled to open himself up to human emotion for most of his life, Sorensen bluntly tells Laura that her brother is going to die. When Kate gets back from her necessary shopping outing, Sorensen tells her that his family have invited Laura to stay with them so that she doesn't have to worry about another child being on their own, though this comes as a surprise to Laura and a pleasant pronouncement to Kate. When Laura and Sorensen arrive at the Carlisle home, Winter and Miriam are both incredibly welcoming and immediately tell her the story of why Sorensen is as he is. His life experience is traumatic, a tale of abusive foster parents being locked in rooms, unwanted and confused, until he somehow found himself wandering in the garden of Janua Cayley and met his mother, who had sent him into foster care at birth. The story, admittedly, <laughs> casts Miriam in a very negative and rather cruel light. Though her intentions were pure, she felt that any boy born of a witch would have a very unfortunate life living with the witches because, as far as she knew, witches could only ever be women. The older witches make it clear that they have an idea as to how to help Jacko escape the clutches of the corrupt and disgusting Carmody Brack, and then send Laura off to speak with Sorensen, who makes a move, which he is rubbish at, before both are saved by the ringing of the phone. It's Kate, and she is letting Laura know that there has been no change in Jacko, and Chris is keeping her company. Jealous and frustrated at her mother's decision to stay with a stranger rather than with her, she does the classic, why is he more important with me? Which gets her nowhere. And while I still don't get why Chris was introduced in the book at all, but he's not evil, he is a comfort to Kate and will continue to be so when she is worrying about her toddler son. Over dinner, much to Sorensen's initial horror and then outright fear, Winter, his grandmother, tells Laura that she would have more of a chance to defeat Brack if she were a witch herself. 
If the warnings she experiences and her ability to identify demons of many types has proved anything, it's that she's a halfway house, and all that would be needed to make a sensitive into a full witch is a changeover. The fact that it's a dangerous thing and could kill her is neither here nor there. To Laura, Jacko is worth the risk. Somehow, and I have to be honest, not quite sure how it's happened, we are more than 50% of the way through February. I know that at the beginning of this year, things have been a bit of a mess where my release schedule is concerned, but I am hopeful that this will change now that the complexities of my life are starting, sort of, to be ironed out. Seriously, it feels like every week this year has been subject to one mess or another, Anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about books. Last week was a great one for book releases. And though I promised myself there wouldn't be another book buying ban, I was planning on practicing something resembling a little bit of restraint. That fell by the wayside when I had a total of five books delivered. Two were books I pre-ordered over the course of 2023. And the other three were impulse buys to keep me amused while I was off work. The changeover is just a decade younger than me. Wow, that's kind of scary to say. Something I didn't realise until I looked at the copyright page in my original copy. It's a book that had a massive influence, seriously, probably the hugest influence of any book on my reading as a child and honestly still has something of an influence on the books I read today. When it comes to this book, I can't really be spoiled because I've read it so many times there are sections I could probably recite without any issue. However, I don't want to spoil things for you. So I'm going to stick with the usual rules I have as regards reviews and my own opinions. Completely spoiler free, though it's going to be kind of hard. The reviews I have included here come from both ends of the spectrum, one star and five star, because whatever my view, I think it's important you have the opportunity to make up your own mind though I really would love you to pick this book up and start the changeover renaissance. Someone you know, yes, that's their username, gave the book one star and had quite a few issues with it when they read it in 2008. They said, Read this in 2008 and was horrified at how bad this book is. First of all, the plot seems dreadful to me. An evil spirit or whatever that creature was drains the main character's brother's body of its life energy. The main character loves her sibling, so she's willing to do whatever it takes to rescue him, which brings her to Sorensen Carlyle, who's called Sorry throughout most of the book. Sorry? What kind of name is that? Either way, turns out the only way to help Laura is through a changeover that's supposed to turn her into a witch. Just one ritual and poof, she has superpowers. That was hard for me to swallow. Speaking about the characters, Laura is your typical good girl, nothing interesting or remarkable about her. That's an archetype that's been done to death. Do we really need another rehash? 
Sorry is mildly amusing, but I found him to be a bit too cynical for my taste. His musings about different things seem to contrast with Laura's shallowness and focus on her big mission, a.k.a. save the brother, save the world. Oh, and his stammering was very annoying. Jacko, he's this cliché, happy, bubbly, energetic little boy who falls the victim of the evil mastermind, but essentially just the writer's pawn to advance the plot. Laura's mother finds a new boyfriend, yay for her, and angst about her son's illness. That's pretty much all she does. In conclusion, I don't recommend this book for the aforementioned reasons. I'd rather read a novel that deals with more substantial and interesting topics and has three-dimensional characters. In the 17 years since the launch of Goodreads, probably one of the oldest book review websites, YA novels have changed a lot. From the release of the first Harry Potter in 1997, which marked the advent of YA that was popular with adults and children alike, through the early 2000s with the Twilight series, the 2010s with I Am Number Four, Before I Fall and Six of Crows, to today with books like Legend Born, Threads That Bind and Check and Mate. I've said it before, but YA novels in the 1980s were far few and far between and though I keep on finding more on my shelves I'm not sure how that I had sort of forgotten about the fact remains that they found a brand new market and experienced a huge resurgence after I hit my 30s on Goodreads the overall rating for the changeover is a nice and positive 4.05 which I didn't expect after reading the first few negative reviews In the last episode, I said that Death of a Gossip was one of the oldest books I'd reviewed, having forgotten all about the Agatha Christie's. The changeover beats it by more than a year. However, like all of those books, it is much older than the websites it now appears on. And due to the fact that it is easily hidden behind better known books of the same genre, targeting the same audience... It has only amassed 4,032 ratings and 422 reviews, and one of those is mine. The majority of those, 43%, or 1,734 readers, gave it five stars, with a further 30%, or 1,244, feeling it was good enough to earn a four-star rating. Just 3%, which actually is pretty high, or 121 people felt that it was so bad it was worth only a one-star rating. And many seemed to share the same opinions as to why, citing issues like one-dimensional characters and a problematic relationship between the two lead protagonists, Laura and Sorensen. Dylan Horrocks gave the book five stars, giving us examples of why in his review. He said... Two lines to demonstrate why I love this book. Outside in the city, traffic lights changed colour, casting quick spells of prohibition and release. And, given the chance to be cruel, did you get cruelty out of your system by acting on the chance, or did you invite it in? This book is beautifully written, but more importantly, it is smart, wise, thoughtful, morally complex and intensely human. As a bonus, although really this is central to the novel, it's also shot through with a powerful sexuality, the sly, ambiguous, difficult pull and tug of emerging adolescent desire. 
The changeover in this story has many resonances, and the transition to adulthood is a significant one. May, as always, explores it with a touch of gleeful wickedness, without simplistic judgment and with great unsentimental kindness. There is plenty of the supernatural in the changeover, but as Sorry Carlyle says of himself at one point, sometimes supernatural means especially natural, rather than outside it. May's characters are strange and unreal, but in ways we recognise. In short, wonderful. It's always interesting to see what people think of a book when I've finished it, though sometimes the more negative reviews of a book I love can be somewhat painful. In fact, I winced as I was reading that one-star review. And that really is the case when it comes to this one. The reviews from those who didn't enjoy it, didn't find the same emotional connection with it, felt as though they were a bit of a stab through the heart. However, everyone is entitled to their own view, and while I wish it were otherwise, can't tell people what to think or feel about a book, or anything else for that matter. Every reader is different, and as such, they will all, no doubt, want something very different from a book. The fact that I love this book doesn't mean I don't see where the negative reviewers are coming from. However, this gives me the opportunity to offer my own view and possibly defend the changeover against some of them. This review, far more than most of my previous reviews, will definitely show that you need to take every opinion with a pinch of salt, including mine, because I am probably just a tad biased. Now I've told you about other people's views, let's get down to it. Here are my thoughts on The Changeover by Margaret May, completely spoiler-free, though that was difficult, and 100% honest. Did I like the book? That's pretty much a given. I don't think that I need to say, yes, I absolutely loved it. I have loved this book for almost my entire life. I fell in love with it the first time I read it, and even now, when I am so far away from the original intended audience, I continue to read and love it. It's the book I turn to when I'm ill, drained, or have hit a slump, and it reminds me of the love I have for reading. Yes, I know that sounds corny, but it is 100% true. I said I'd be honest. What do I like about the book? Yes, I admit I am doing this episode a tad differently, but normally I'm talking about a book I have read for the first time, and that is not the case here by any stretch. This book has actually become one I can literally go in and pick and choose the chapters I want to read just to give myself a little bit of a, an emotional high. I know that if The Changeover were released now in 2024, it would not be the same kind of success it was in the mid-1980s and possibly, probably I wouldn't have been able to find it on my school library bookshelves. One of someone you know's points in their review was that Laura is a cliché, the common character who has appeared in every book. However, what I feel hasn't been taken into account is the fact that Laura Chant was one of the first of her kind. She was not written in the same era as Bella Swan, Katniss Everdeen, or any of the other not-like-other-girls heroines we've encountered in the YA novels of recent years. Now, 
This isn't me saying she's better than any of these characters, but she was the first step on the moon. Laura Chant was the not-like-other-girls girl who possibly influenced the creation of these characters. For some reason, the 1980s was a time when any YA novels that were released were short. I could easily read about four in an afternoon when I was left alone to do so, and the changeover is no different. At just 208 pages, the story does suffer at times from rushed plot lines and moments that could have been drawn out and far more detailed, a style that is preferred these days. They were snappy and to the point. May is good at this. Her other novels, The Catalogue of the Universe and Alchemy, are also rather brief, yet still have a beginning, middle and end, and the stories are complete and complex, a snack-sized bite of perfection that you can savour time and time again. Are there elements of the book that I don't enjoy as much as I probably should? Given the fact that due to the book's length, they actually take up somewhat precious real estate, yes, the whole Kate and Chris element of the plot, that's Laura and Jacko's mum and her new Canadian boyfriend for the uninitiated. I would agree with some who said that Kate choosing to establish a new relationship while her four-year-old son is in hospital, possibly dying, is a little bit on the tactless side. However, on the reverse of this, I can understand why she is so desperate to find something to cling to. A fact that Sorry actually points out to Laura when she has a self-righteous reaction upon discovering that her mum and the new boyfriend spent the night together. She snaps at Sorry and takes her frustrations out on him and he just stands there and takes it. While I liked the fact that the adults in the book are present, not only Chris and Kate, but also Sorry's mother and grandmother, the so-called Carlisle witches, Chris and Kate's subplot is not really necessary to the development of the story, doing little except showing how much growth, and more importantly, growing up, Laura still has to do. Laura's character is an interesting one. As I've already said, she has a lot of growing up to do, and she's also a blueprint. She's a 14-year-old girl who obviously feels a level of resentment towards the father who barely shows her any attention after leaving his family and starting another one. She takes on additional responsibilities at home to help her mother, who is both mum and dad to her two children, and it's for this reason that I sort of allow a lot of her less good qualities to slide. But if I am to look at the book in a fair and balanced way, despite it being my all-time favourite, then I have to at least acknowledge that she sometimes leans a little bit too close to the dramatic. She isn't the girl who wants to be the centre of attention, seemingly preferring to be on the outside looking in. However, during the book, this does change as her confidence grows and this level of character development is what I love seeing in her. Self-awareness and a desire to take responsibility for her actions. Sorensen Carlyle, or Sorry, is likely the most problematic character in the book. Yes, even above Carmody Brack, the bad guy. But that doesn't mean he wasn't my first ever book boyfriend. At 16, he is two years older than Laura, but he has a strange obsession where the younger girl is concerned and is not shy about it. Once she realises that he has not only been taking photographs of her without her knowledge, but has also been watching her. 
In other circumstances, and if it were real, I would probably be thinking, oh, that's so creepy, and he needs to be locked away. However, while he does have a somewhat illicit interest in her, hence the supernatural romance subtitle of the novel, he also senses that she is different like him. Sorensen is a witch, like his mother and his grandmother before him, and because of this difference, he spent many years in foster homes, suffering the abuse at the hands of parents who could not understand him and didn't know how to handle his issues. Now, I'm not saying that this excuses some of his creepier behaviours, because it really doesn't. He does have some sort of stalker behaviours, and even his inability to communicate with Laura, I'd go so far as to say he's actually nervous about being around her, doesn't give him the right to be so alarming. But, and it's a big one, it does go some way to explaining why he is the way he is. When she first arrives at Janua Cayley, the Carlisle home, he does his best to almost frighten her away, to spook her into leaving. It's when he realises that he can't do that, that she is going to stick around because she's on a mission, that he reveals he's interested in her, partly because she is fascinating, but also partly because he recognises her as someone who is like him, someone who understands the supernatural even if she isn't quite sure what she is seeing, sensing or experiencing. For all that he can appear creepy and stalkerish, Sorensen Carlyle is strangely sweet. And though there are moments where I have winced and thought, Oh, Sorensen, no. Such as when he tells her, I was being subtle, letting her know I was looking at her legs. She's got very sexy legs but I'm not allowed to tell her about them at school. He has no filter. And I know I'm not meant to think it charming, and in other circumstances I probably wouldn't. But I feel as though I know him, his quirks, his sensitivities, and the reasons that go some way to explaining why he is so incredibly awkward. He occasionally acts as though he has confidence, but as you get to know him, it's clear his arrogance is nothing more than a fragile front. Abused, abandoned and feeling awkward in his position as the only male witch in the Carlisle family's maiden mother and chrome formation, having just joined the family dynamic, he's unsure of quite where he stands. His mother Miriam and grandmother Winter are very honest and open when it comes to revealing that they had wanted a girl, and when Sorensen was born, he was given away. Sounds harsh, but reflects the matriarchal situation they live in as a family of witches. Laura may have elements that give her the feel of female protagonists from more modern YA novels, but, and I will continue to stress this, she came first. She has a few clumsy tendencies, but unlike many of her protégés, she is strong, stubborn, determined, driven, and she isn't sighing after Sorensen as though he's her saviour. He is a means to an end, and romance is the last thing on her mind. He fell first, and he admits it. She goes to him because he is a witch and she needs some help to heal her brother, having already exhausted her own pitiful well of knowledge. In many ways, Sorensen is the road to the people who can really guide her, his mother and grandmother. 
I love their dynamic, admittedly. They are almost like a comedic duo in many ways. You can sense Laura's exasperation with Sorensen's continued innuendos, and he loves pushing her buttons, knowing that she is going to react to what he says. There are moments I forget she is only 14, because while some of her understanding and emotions are immature, see the moments with Kate and Chris, she is responsible and driven to be the one who is going to save her brother from the hungry, lemure demon, Carmody Brack. Quite often, I find myself frustrated with the female protagonist in fantasy and romanticy novels, wanting them to be more than they are, but I have never found that to be the case with Laura Chant. Rather unusually, in the case of YA novels, the adults aren't absent or completely useless. Sorry's family are understanding, helpful and supportive of the actions that have to be taken. And though their role is minimal, this is a YA novel, so the teenagers are the central focus, they have an important role to play and they play it well. They are Sorensen's backup, his guidance, and they don't overshadow or diminish him for needing it. Kate, Laura's mum, is a confused, panicked and anxious person. As the book progresses, you see her slowly falling apart as she faces up to the fact that, that she may lose her young son, Jacko, to an illness that no one understands. Her focus is intently on him and what he needs. But she also finds a distraction in Chris Holly, the Canadian she met at work. He offers her respite from her life, a break from the horrors that are going on. That he showed up when he did is more a case of poor timing. When I first read the book, I honestly thought that Chris was going to show himself to be the bad guy. But as an adult, I can see him and his relationship with Kate for what it is. Exactly what she needs, just at a difficult time. The only other adult in the book is actually Carmody Brack. He is the real villain of the piece, and honestly, he always gave me the shivers. A man suddenly rose from behind the counter where he had presumably been putting things away very, very quietly. He was grinning, his teeth apparently too big for his thin, rubbery lips to cover them. Indeed, his whole face was somehow shrunken back around his smile so that he looked like a grinning puppet. He was almost completely bald, with what hair he had clipped very close, and there were dark blotches on his cheek and neck, almost, but not quite, like bruises. From the first time you meet him to the very last, he has a slimy and unpleasant feel to him that leaks off the page, and this disgusting nature is something that May expresses incredibly well. You are meant to be creeped out by him, to want to take a step away and avoid being anywhere near him. That Jacko puts his hand out to receive a stamp on his hand only highlights the young child's trusting and pure nature, and further proves how much of a predatorial character Brack is meant to be. I could easily go on forever about this book and the elements I love, from the conversations to the confrontations, but to do so would spoil the book for those of you who haven't yet read it. Personally, I still feel that this is almost like the blueprint for novels that have come since, and I am sad that it hasn't received the credit it deserves. 
If you're looking for something like this, or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these, possibly. YA novels are such a huge market today. So if you're looking for something including fantasy, witchcraft, teenagers discovering their power and strength, there are so many options, starting with books like Legend Born and Bloodmarked by Tracy Dion, Silver in the Bone and Law by Alexandra Bracken, The Inheritance Cycle by Christopher Paolini, or the Shadow and Bone series by Lee Bardugo. Seriously, there are so many options to choose from that if I decided to list them all, I would probably still be here next week. If you want more YA recommendations or are curious and really want to find out more about what 1980s YA novels were like, then get in touch. I am always happy to have the opportunity to talk about the books I loved reading when I was a kid. As you can tell from the fact that I am actually releasing a new episode, things went well last week at the hospital and I have recovered enough from the lovely intubation that I am no longer sounding as though I need to change my career to something far less salubrious. My reading luckily picked up a little bit while I was recovering. I finished a total of four books. Two of them brand new arrivals in my collection, so my TBR is kind of the same as it was before. However, I know that February will be another somewhat quiet month. I'm looking at March and hoping that it will be the month where things pick up and I get back to the pattern that I enjoyed last year, reading around three to four books in a week. However, there are moments when savouring a book, taking time to relish the beautiful writing, is worth taking an extra few days. Though my TBR is definitely growing, the physical one is currently at 108 books and isn't going to get smaller anytime soon. With my desire for this year being joy, I would still love your recommendations. So if you've come across any books you think I'd enjoy, please email me at beingbookishpod at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram where I also post pictures of many of my current and planned reads. Don't forget, if you want to hear about new releases and other books I've read and keep up with my reviews because I am still writing them, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website, beingbookish.co.uk. And I know I keep on saying this, but a new newsletter is coming really soon. Well, that's it for this week. And thank you so much for listening to my gushing about the changeover. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you might listen. You can also follow me on Instagram as beingbookishpod, on TikTok as beingbookishreviews and on X as being underscore bookish. Still can't yet get used to calling it X and I still say, oh, on Twitter. And you can find newer episodes and some book-themed shorts on YouTube where I am at Being Bookish Pod. Or you can check out my website for the podcast back catalogue and full written spoiler-free book reviews at beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I have a few things left to do before another week at work commences and I really want to get a few more chapters of The Book of Doors read. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>